takes out Dragtail, and the shrews with Mara and Pickle come hurtling around the corner. Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Startled into a panic, Klitsch manages to get himself into the center of the mass of his warriors. He grabs a fox, shouting at the poor creature. No one had warned him. The fox, of course, is killed by an arrow from Oxeye, and Klitsch moans that it's all been a trap. Earthstripe breaks his bonds, fully possessed once more by Battlelust. He grabs a forge hammer and starts to storm towards the crater, like he is going up. Because uh, some some part of him just knows Farago is up there, I guess. Mm-hmm. That badger uh, instinct. I don't know what's... Yeah. He can probably uh, hear the, bad- the fighting is what set him off. Because, like, his hairs are all below him now. So there's nothing to stop him from going upwards. Yeah. The battle in the crater is in full swing. Farago is gripped by panic at the sight of Earthwhite and orders his creatures to kill him. Any beast who does is rich. And I find it interesting how often in these books we'll have, like, the master of the horde who tells them to focus in on one creature specifically. And it's like, I feel like if they didn't do this as often, the battles wouldn't go as well for the heroes as they usually do. Because when you have everyone focused in on one target, their backs are exposed. They're no longer working as a unit. They are now competing. Yeah. Sam Kim darts about uh, with his sword, and his back is watched by Arula, who she has a, has a sling. They're, like, back-to-back, basically. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely fucking shit up. Uh, the vermin are confused and dismayed, because who were these creatures who just showed up? Yeah. They hadn't seen them before. They're fighting fresh. They're unknown. They're an unknown variable. Like, they had- this is nothing in There's the another place. fucking badger! Yeah! <laughs> And this one is big, McMassive, and looks like a ghost. Uh, Farago sees his chance to sneak behind Earthwhite. If he can slay him, he'll regain the tide of the battle. He pulls his two favorite knives, the skinning one and the killing one, and awaits his chance and jumps. Also, before we read this next bit, I wonder if the two knives is a bit of symbolism here. He constantly talks about backstabbing and stuff like that, but also he has twin knives. Two knives, and is felled by twins. Mm-hmm. An Earthstripe appears in front of him, grabbing the weasel in both paws. Shocked, Farago just starts stabbing. Can you read the bit where Farago pulls his two knives out and it does that, like, everything just kind of freezes? Yes. Like, that bit? Because I think that's really good. Okay. Seeing his chance, Farago sneaked up on Earthwhite, knowing that if he could slay the white badger, the fight would swing his way. Earthwhite had his back to Farago, hammering relentlessly at any creature coming into club range. The assassin drew both his knives, the killer and the skinner, and crouched low, bunching his muscles for the spring that would carry him onto the white badger's back, where his blades would feast upon the unprotected neck. Nerving himself, he made the spring. In midair, time seemed to stand still. He heard the roar, saw Earthstripe appear in front of him, and felt the shock as two fearsome paws caught him in their vice-like grip. Farago screamed with shock. Galvanized into action, he began stabbing with both knives, plunging them into the body of the roaring badger lord. The massive injuries he had formerly sustained, together with the horrendous wounds of Farago's daggers, 
now caused Earthstripe's fierce dark eyes to cloud over with death mist. But his fate was not yet sealed. From the deep wells of strength within his gigantic frame, he called up a last mighty surge that would enable him to rid Salamandastron of Farago. Crushing the blue-eyed weasel to him, Earthstripe leapt from the top of the mountain, yelling his last beloved battle cry. Eulalia! God. Talk about a Pyrrhic victory! Good lord! Yeah. And for <sighs> those who don't know the term, a Pyrrhic victory is you win, but at what cost? Mm -hmm. Named after a real Roman general. For those of you who used to watch Ruby by uh, Rooster Teeth and cry all the time about Piranikos. <laughs> I'm still mad. I'm still mad. I'm still mad. I'm going to be mad forever. They warned you right there with the name. They did. Her entire existence was a red flag. That doesn't stop me from being mad. Anyway. Earthwhite realizes that he'd just gotten his only glimpse of his long-lost twin, and the look on his face is enough to send the vermin into a panic. Like, this is like, straight up a Greek tragedy. Yeah. And this bit right here. It is a lot. Uh, Alpho grabs Samkim and enlists him into getting everyone, like, into the mountain. Earthwhite will kill them all if they don't get out of his way. The shrews and everyone else uh, does so, as the fully berserked badger lays into the vermin. Like, he's become a monster at this point. There is no sanity to him. Yeah. Because, like... The badgers are terrifying. Yeah, because he, he's experiencing grief and rage at, like, he came all this way for his long-lost brother, and now he'll never get to know him. Mm -hmm. It's the grief of it, and it is a lot. It's tragic it's a greek tragedy it is and it's not just like not just it's 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 interesting to see how brian can blend writing and mythology styles because i would also just very gently hazard to say that this is almost a little bit of like northern mythology too like the lost separated brothers coming together for just a heartbeat before being separated again yeah like, definitely feels like something you would read in a Norse myth or, um, you know, oh, it's very, very Irish. Yeah. Like, old Irish, like pre Catholic. It's very Irish. Yeah. Um, it's sad stuff, though. Like, this is, this is like a heavy hitter. Brian. Yeah. I, I, I feel bad for saying this, but like in a lot of the later books, I remember Brian, he definitely plays it safer with certain books. So with him coming out swinging in this book, it's a little bit of a shock, not a bad one. Yeah. But you wouldn't like, I never expected this would happen. I thought that the brothers would at least like meet, trade a little banter, maybe like, oh, hello, hello. And then one of them would die. Like we knew Earthstripe was going to die. We've known that since like a quarter way into the book. Literally ever that, since he did his like in happen. a fugue state badger carving. Right. We knew that he was going to die. Like, that's just the fate of Badger Lords is to die. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the fate of everybody, but you know what I mean. But they die in the non-standard old age manner. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's still the... I have to applaud Brian for being able to capture the tragedy of this moment without it feeling cloying, cheap, 
or contrive. Yeah. And it just gets worse, like emotionally. It just gets worse. But before then... But before then, Pennybright brings the last of the arrows, but Oxai is smiling. He spotted the shrews, and with a call, he gets a response from Sapwood. He knows the cavalry is here. Hang on, let me see. Where is that line? Here we go. Oxai grinned as he fitted a shaft to his bow. Good girl. Keep slinging. Penny, look at young Ling there. He's tossing rocks like a good un. Want some good news, my dear? There's a band of shrews and whatnot attacking from the lower levels. Listen to this. Oxai shouted over the melee at the top of his voice. Duck and weave! Blood and vinegar! Long patrols here! The sound echoed down the rocky stairwell. A moment later, there was an answering call. Jab and move! Give him a thousand! Long patrols here, too! Good old sapwood! Oxeye's grin spread from ear to ear. Knew I never sent him on that cruise for nothing. <laughs> like, the, the victory of, like, after the shock of what happens to Earthstripe, the victory of this is mm -hmm. so soothing. Yeah. Uh, and they start hearing people from behind them as well. And there's a brief panic as Lingford thinks they've been flanked. But Arula says no, they're on their side. Oxai greets her with a paw shake, amused at the Mole Maid's willingness to fight with them. Sam Kim likes Oxai right away. He preps his sword and suggests a charge, which Oxai is all too happy to do. War cries are yelled, and the group charge towards the vermin. It's like, you're getting, like, this is the point of the book where we get all three war cries. Like, Brian just loves to have all three. Yeah, we've got, we've got Redwall, Eulalia, and Laga 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 Laga. It's mm -hmm. fucking great. Mm-hmm. Um, Klitsch, we, we, we cut back to Klitsch, because Klitsch is miraculously still alive. <laughs> well, not miraculously. He was, he intentionally positioned himself in the middle of his horde, yep. so... He has a wall of creatures between him and the actual battle. Yep. Uh, that helps. <laughs> yeah. Klitsch kills the two vermin closest to them and then just drops to the ground and hides under their bodies to pretend to be dead. The shattered corpses of the corpse makers don't stand a chance. The shattered corpse. Wait, hold on. The shattered, the shattered remains, remains of the corpse makers don't stand a chance and the fight is won. Sam Kim and Arula meet in the middle of the bloody and corpse filled uh, stairway. A shocked silence falls on them all. Pennybright requests to go outside. She wants to feel the sunshine. Uh, he agrees, and they all march outside. Lonebud takes Mara's paw, letting out a. T but like as like this is supposed to be a soft moment, like she's taking Mara's paw. Mm -hmm. But literally, she does that. She lets out a terrible scream when she sees what awaits them outside. Mara is confused until she sees what it is and chases after her. Earthstripe's body lays in the sand. He still holds the dead Farago tight in a death grip. Earthwhite is weeping next to him, paws cut and bruised from his hasty descent. And, like, this is a death that really genuinely hurts. Yeah. Because, like, some, some of the deaths in the Redwall books, yes, they're sad, but they're clearly just there to be plot motivation, like the deaths that happen in the early beginnings of the books. Like usually when the old mentor dies, or like the innocent in Redwall is killed. We in don't an have as much. We don't have as much build up or emotional attachment. Exactly. Like even with Sprigget, like 
there wasn't as he, like he was good yeah. and like his death sucked but there wasn't that same like emotional attachment of like we want earthstripe to win mm-hmm. we feel for earthstripe we have seen like his emotional state throughout this and not just that but we we and the characters are denied the satisfaction and the emotional healing of that reunion that mm-hmm. reunion that was slightly built up to us their their hope the thought of he's alive i'm actually going to get to see him get to know him and that hope is just abruptly thrown away mm-hmm. and that's what really makes this this is hurt. where i started crying Mm-hmm. This is where I started. Like, it really, really got me, though, in a minute. Um, but, like, this is where I started fucking crying. Uh, mm-hmm. Lonebud removes the weasel's body and the medallion from around his neck. When Oxeye and Sapwood offer to help her, she nudges the body away with her foot, telling them to send it out to sea. He doesn't deserve a burial. And, like, the layers behind this, the levels of, like insult and degradation of like you're not even a being now your your body is nothing you don't deserve any shred of respect or humanity or beast whatever you want to call it in this culture it's just woof. yeah blinded by tears mara watches Lonebud place the medallion around earth white's neck Mara takes Earthstripe's paws, letting her words pour out for all that they are too late. She knows that he wanted to teach uh, she knows what he wanted to teach her now. She knows how great he was, how loved and respected. And to add to all his titles, she gives him one more. Father. And that is when I started crying. <laughs> I can hear you choking up right now. <laughs> um and like I put in the notes, like my notes are just and then behold my son for he hath returned to me and be in all caps hi i'm actually fucking crying see this is like i didn't expect this i thought mara would get that solace of like telling him face to face even just glancingly in battle like mm-hmm. i thought she would have a moment to see him alive again but she doesn't and that's what hurts the worst out of all this because she knew earth stripe it's not like the other two she knew him he was her father yeah and it just it's it's these stories of like people who leave on a bad note and then never get to apologize those are the ones that mess me up the most i want to read what she says to him okay Mara knelt and clasped the big battle-scarred paws of the fallen badger lord. Words tumbled out with her tears. I came back too late. Now it is past the time when I could tell you what is in my heart. I have ranged far and wide to be back home here with you, and in that time I have slowly understood what you tried to teach me. You who were ever true to your own code of honor and duty. To every beast you were Earthstripe the Strong, Lord of the Mountain, so will your name be always remembered. You cannot hear me now, but I wish to add one more name to your title. The young badger maid took both the lifeless paws and placed them on her bowed head as she spoke a single word. Father. Like, 
dead man for making me cry <laughs> literally i told How can can after, teach you this <laughs> literally after i finished reading the book i told can that the book made me cry and it's just like i'm gonna use a ouija board summon this old man fight him <laughs> back with klitch klitch is waiting in the silence he's smothered by the hot and still air that surrounds the dead bodies once he thinks it is safe he gets away from them and heads upwards his only chance to escape from the crater top but he gets lost in the warren of tunnels mouth and mind parched from panic and fighting the more time he takes the more fear sets in till he comes across some barrels barrels of water he sips some of the dregs starting to feel more confident now that he's no longer thirsty Yes, he'd escape, head south, find the land's father had uh, ruled, and then his stomach starts to hurt. He shakes it off and the following pangs, long enough to get to the edge of the crater. With his body going numb and vision dimming, he decides to curl up between two rocks to sleep and never wakes up. Like the minute that he starts to describe, like when he he wiggles out from one of the corpses, like it's described like his tongue is dry, stuck to the roof of his mouth. I knew, I knew what Brian was going to do. And I was like, yes, yeah, yeah, do it, do it, do it. This is so good. This is like, this is like, usually, you know how often I have complained about like the main heroes not being able to kill the villains. Mm -hmm. This time I actually really approve of this because this is their own tactics coming around to end them. Yeah. This is their dishonesty. This is their disrespect of that culture of honor and decency. And it's just very thematically satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just very greatly enjoy the way this whole bit is written because like you do complain about like Klitsch not remembering that they had poisoned everything. Well, no, I said, like, that was part of me wanted to call him, like, an idiot. Like, how could he not remember? But it's battle, dehydration, trauma, Mm -hmm. like, death. Like, he's been fighting for so long, hasn't been able to catch a breath, hasn't been able to get a drink, and it's hot, and it's disgusting, and he panicked. And it makes Mm -hmm. your brain go all kinds of weird. Of course he wouldn't remember. He'd just be like, oh, this is water. I'm going to drink the water. Mm-hmm. That's as far as his brain thirsty. went. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And it's, it's part of that is, is his, his inexperience. Mm-hmm. And part of it is, you know, he wanted so desperately to prove to his father that like, yeah, no, I'm going to be like, I am good enough to do this. Which is how he ended up in the middle of everything. Mm-hmm. So it is it is all of his inexperience and his cockiness and his want to best his father as well as prove himself to him that gets him in the end. Yep. It's sad, but it's, you know, it's what happens to villains like mm-hmm. this, to people who don't listen. Yeah. Two days of hard work see the dead buried. Hares and shrews are honored with penance, 
and the corpse makers are buried in unmarked graves to be forgotten with time. The mountain is opened up, and parties go out to find supplies and replant crops on the terrace. Down below, Arula finds a freshwater spring. It'll make the mountain nigh impenetrable, and the shrews help her make it easier to access. Like, she's a mole! She's using her nose! I love this! This is again showing animals and their different strengths. It's good! Yeah, like, she, she sniffs it out, and the shrews help her, like, open up the living, that's described as the living rock, which I Mm -hmm. don't think this mountain is made out of living rock, but okay. (laughs) We'll talk about that in the questions, because Skylark actually did ask that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, like, it's true. Having a freshwater spring, if you can't find the source of it, you can't contaminate it. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah, they'll have water. Humans can survive without food way longer than they can survive without water. Same with animals. Water is a necessity. Yeah, water we, important. We, we are just walking bags of seawater. Ah, uh, yes, I see you've also read that Tumblr post. <laughs> it's a good it's a Tumblr good post. It's, it's a not good wrong. <laughs> like it's, it it's, might exaggerate some things. And it's aggressively but... simplified, but mm-hmm. on, on the basic of basics, it is correct. We are walking mm-hmm. containers of seawater because blood mm-hmm. is just adapted seawater <laughs> anyway yeah we need water also hey listeners go drink some fucking water hydrate or dehydrate take a fucking shot bitch of water which reminds me i need to drink water when we're done with this uh, oh my goodness izzy what as i've been steadily sipping on my water over i here. had i can bought me coffee after i took him to work so i've been drinking that coffee yeah, I do need to drink water, though. Um, Please do. Anyway, the last and most somber duty is interring Earthstripe. Sam Kim is asked to attend, carrying Martin's sword. The three badgers carry him, and Oxeye and Sapwood lead the way. Sapwood points out the last carvings Earthstripe did, though he cannot read the writing left behind. Lonebud can, though. She reads the words... And says she cannot tell them. It is a secret to be held until Earthwhite is ready to read it himself. His one last request is to be buried beneath Emlor. Does anyone know what that means? And I'm like, ah, one last riddle. Yep. Because, like, this book didn't really have a riddle quest. Nope. Not really. Just a lot of Martin being weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm just going to, like, give them cryptic prophecies this time around. I'm tired of riddles. I'm taking a break. But the badgers get to have riddles. One one little riddle as a treat. Uh, <laughs> they wonder, Sam Kim muttering the word out loud. As he walks, he traces his hand over a blank bit of rock to discover it's not rock at all. They peel back a cleverly designed curtain to find the crumbling bones of Lord Brocktree, the first badger lord of the mountain. Like, this is a, a rough fabric curtain that has, like, mm-hmm. pebbles and sand glued to it with pine tar to make it look like it's the rock. Like, it's clever. Mm-hmm. Um, Sapwood muses that, you know, Lord Brocktree would know what Emlor was, but t- he sure won't tell him. <laughs> yeah. Mara realizes, though, that it looks like his paws are pointing somewhere. Following that, she finds what seems to be a blank copper plate. Until she asks for a lantern to be brought near. 
She asks who has good eyes, and Sapwood volunteers. Placing the lantern by the Badger Lord's paw, it reveals words. Sapwood can't read them, uh, but he does scratch them out. He actually doesn't scratch them out. He has uh, Sam Kim do it with the sword. Okay. Yeah. And they read Emlor. Lombud follows the light and finds the words carved on a boulder. They'd been reflected. It really reads, roll me. Earthwhite picks up on this and moves to roll the boulder. Mara almost offers to help, but is stopped by Lombud. It's good she did too, because Earthwhite, in a burst of strength, picks up the boulder, moves three steps, and sets it down. Like, they're just in like, the, oh like, no, what's he gonna do? And he's like, is he gonna be able to roll that by himself? And he's just like, I'm gonna lift it up. I'm gonna pick it up. I'm gonna move. He's fine. <laughs> and in this, like, cave-like depression that the boulder had been covering, we find that there had, in fact, been treasure in the mountain after all. I, I mean, it does make sense, I suppose, that they would have treasure in the mountain, because, like, they fight sea vermin all the time. And what mm-hmm. do sea vermin do? They go up and down and take treasure. Yeah. So, of course, they do have treasure in the mountain. It's described um, as being, like, pearls and jewelry and fine okay. badger-made weaponry and armor mm-hmm. and stuff. Like, it's all, like... Including a lot of weapons. Long swords, sabers, rapiers, strange curved swords, shields, spears, pikes, daggers, and lances. Made from the most precious woods and metals lay in a glittering heap, cascading over the massive sets of ancient badger armor, studded with stones that shone and twinkled, scarlet, ultramarine, turquoise, amber, and obsidian jet. Yeah, it it is a lot. Um, And, like, it's basically, like, it's also, like, they get stuff from, like, the, the vermin they fight, but there's also, like, oyster pearls from fresh catches, storms bringing in treasures from the depths of the ocean from, like, like, uh, 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 sunken ships or things Mm -hmm. that have gone overboard or just stuff, because we don't know what the fuck lives in the ocean in this world. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? Apparently big, big, giant fish that you can just slap on the front of your ship as a bit of trophy piece. Yep. (laughs) And, uh, and then there's Kit making a bad joke. Maybe the treasure we found was the friends we made along the way. Don't. Stop. <laughs> Earthstripe is lowered into the cave and lay, uh, is laid to rest as an eternal guardian of the treasure. And I'm not fond of this because throughout the entire book, Like, he denies the existence of this treasure. And part of me feels like having the treasure exist after all kind of cheapens everything that happened to an extent. I don't think he knew it was there. Because with, like, the badger, like, vision bullshit, their magic, I don't think maybe, like, I don't think it told him, hey, there's badger treasure. It's just like, there's this thing over here. That says Emlor, and then roll me. You want to be? Um, you need to be put there. <laughs> maybe, and, maybe because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Because through his entire character arc, it's the rabbits. Sorry, I keep calling them rabbits. It's the hares and Mara that he cares about most. He mm-hmm. doesn't care about this treasure, and like it's just because that's eh. you're you're right there. Like that treasure trove 
is not actually the treasure of Salamanderstron. It is the people within the mountain. It is the badgers mm-hmm. and, like, the history. That is the mm-hmm. true treasure. There's also, like, I think some of this is, like, the point of it. Like, with him being the guardian of this treasure. Like, these are no longer riches. They're no longer yeah. treasure to be, like, sought out by vermin and enemies. This is a tomb. And these secrets are his burial shroud locked away forevermore where none will find it. Like, because stuff like this is going to be made into the future by more badgers. Yeah. Badgers create things. They create wonderful, terrifying things. And they use what they have at paw. And a lot of times it's the things that they get from fighting vermin that and things that wash up from the ocean. It's what they yeah. have. It's what the Long Patrol brings back from their, like, uh, scouting missions and things like that. It's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. There's no doubt that badgers into the future will continue to make beautiful things that could be considered treasure. But for the badgers and the hares in the mountain, it's not treasure. Yeah. I guess it's also kind of slightly looping back to my repeated frustrations over like the emphasis on like places being rich or having like great hordes of gold and stuff like that. And it's like, but there's no use for it in the society that Brian has created in this world that he's created Mm -hmm. which is why it also helps reflect about how Redwall is the truly rich place because of all the food and comfort it has yeah they don't need gold they've got food plenty they got food to do feasts any little drop of a hat they have food and family and history and community Mm -hmm. and the real treasures the friends we made along the way (laughs) fuck off (laughs) I'm moving on next chapter we're back at Redwall and we have Thrug arriving back at Redwall his bird escort in tow he has a cap that he got off of a weasel on his head it's got a jaunty little falcon feather in it Uh, I am imagining the Robin Hood hat uh, he gives a bow with a flourish of his cap, and Faith Spinney and his sister Thruggan let him in. And she says that he looks basically like a rascal in that hat. Uh, and he gets back at her by playing up how hard the journey had been, and how he'd never stopped thinking about her wanting to ask a question. And she gets, like, kind of misty-eyed and is like, what question? What's for tea? <laughs> yeah. Like she's sibling. Just, she, she starts chasing after him with a broom while everybody laughs at them. Because she's just like, you fucking asshole, you bottle-nosed rogue. I love the sibling energy here. It's so it, It's good. so choice. Just one thing Brian can write really well is, like, sibling moments. Mm-hmm. This is a sibling moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Thrug and his bird friends enjoy a fine lunch on the gatehouse steps, trying to not laugh at the fibbing tales of Dumble. Uh, Dumble tries to call them out, throwing in some Northland accent into his speech. Please note, from here on out, Dumble basically just starts exclusively talking with that high Northland accent that all the birds Mm -hmm. talk in. Like, he just Mm -hmm. does that. That's just a thing that he does. He Uh, is at the age where he's copying the people he looks up to. Yes. MacPherson is quite pleased with the Falcons, approving of their grand manners. Later that evening, a snoring Dumble is hauled off to bed, and Thrug is presented with a hand-carved bowl and spoon with his name on it, a thank-you gift from the the whole abbey. 
He can present it at any time in the kitchens and get hot root soup all for himself. He's highly embarrassed, hiding his face in the bowl as they cheer his name. Also, I make a comment of, like, as opposed to machine carved, what with all the industrial plants and machines around? Tail carve. <laughs> it could have been tail carve. I don't know. It's this, this time I'm divorcing you. <laughs> a bonfire later that night has the adults musing on the turning season. Soon the apples will be ready for picking and making into cider. And yet, the two youngsters, Sam Kim and Arula, still haven't returned home. Formal says it's not right for a mole maid to be gone so long. Nasturtium, who'd been staring into the fire, sings. Just like this little ditty of, Bring me back a squirrel carrying my blade. Bring me back a little mole, a pretty fair young maid. Bring me back a speedy one with hunger and long ears, and a redwell guardian to watch us through the years. And Nasturtium apologizes and Formal comforts her. No worries. It was only Martin again. <laughs> like, sure, that's normal a, now. Yeah, it's a regular occurrence. Like, yeah, we have our one singer who just regularly gets possessed by the guardian of our re- of our abbey. It's no big deal anymore. Yep. It's okay. And Abbas Vale <laughs> says that she can relax now. If Martin says they're coming home, then they're coming home. The fire burns to embers as the night rolls on. And this is the part where I kind of like, there's, I like the faith that is shown in this book. I feel like it's one of the stronger points because like Martin is pretty much Jesus mixed with King Arthur at this point. (laughs) He is the only like named figure of worship that we actually have because there's no denying they worship Martin. He is more than just a saint to these people if we are continuing with the catholicism and uh you know like the they're loosely catholic druidish um i i don't even think you can call it a religion but just like lifestyle and it's comforting it's sweet like the fact that they have this confidence that if martin says it it must be true Mm -hmm. it's trusting your ancestors to know the right path forward mm mm-hmm which is a thing across all cultures is we have a respect for the people who came before us and that we should know the mistakes that they made and the things that we can do to do the right thing going forward. You know? And like mm-hmm. Martin is the Abbey's ancestor. So trusting him to know that way forward. Yeah. It's trusting the people who came before like, yeah, they know what's up. Mm hmm. They have all those years of experience, and if they're a ghost, potentially even more. <laughs> you, you get a lot of watching done when you don't have anything else to do. Yeah. The next morning at Salamandastron sees a ceremony take place. Earthwhite, wearing the repaired and cleaned battle armor of his brother, is given the name of Earthwhite the Mighty, the new lord of Salamandastron. Like, we get this whole scene where we've got uh, Samkin and Arula all like dressed up we have uh sapwood and oxi we have lone bud uh mm-hmm. and mara and pickle i think is also in the the group like they're all like each in, carrying their weapon too. each carrying like their weapon or a weapon because arula has a paddle and uh, not no, a I think pickle, ha- 
Pickle had the paddle. She had her sling. Did she? Okay. I think it was. And I know Mara has a spear. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like there's there's just this mix and then like earth white in the armor that has been cleaned, repaired, and basically set to fit him. Uh, and Lonebud makes like this whole speech about it. Uh, and then a plain but hearty feast is laid out on the sandy shore. But there's a bit where it's just like uh, Brian poking fun at himself, I think, where it's mm-hmm. like the hair's like they knew how to cook, but it was nothing compared to Redwall. Mm-hmm. They're, like the, they're fighting hairs. Homey... They're soldiers. Yeah. It's homey filling fare. Yep. Like the stuff that'll keep you going all day. Some of the younger beasts enjoy making a sand salamandastron, to which Elfo suggests Arula make a tunnel entrance for it. She takes off to do so, and Ashnin and Alpho admire the young one's ability to bounce back from the horrors of war. And I just put like a, a backwards smiley face with like, oh, give it time, Alpho. There's going to be trauma and PTSD. Yeah. Yep. Like, you cannot convince me that Lombud is going to develop uh, um, claustrophobia. Lombud? Not long, but I'm sorry. Um, spring. Penny bright. Penny bright. Thank you. Yep. This if this girl gets out of it without developing claustrophobia, I would be extremely impressed. Yeah. Just good so, night alive. All these youngsters are playing except for Sam Kim, who's been quiet all morning and is off by himself, looking out over the sea, thinking deep thoughts. And he is indeed alone until Mara comes to join him. A conversation starts, though neither will look at the other. He speaks of the season's turn, and she speaks of how he seems homesick. What was Redwall like in the autumn? And he tells her of the gentle plenty of the place. She says he must love it, and he says that he does. Does she love Salamandastron? She doesn't hate it. But she's wise enough to know there's too many bad memories to really be happy. And it's really Earthwhite's place now. He's becoming more the Badger Lord by the minute. Uh, so what will she do then? She says she'll follow her dream. A dream Sam Kim already knows she's had, because he'd had one too. Of Martin telling him to sit by himself, and the Guardian of Redwall would come to join him. She says Martin had promised her she'd be happy at Redwall. So Sam Kim takes her hand and tells her it's time to go home, Mara of Redwall. I like that she does acknowledge her trauma, too. of Like, mm-hmm. not just the war and the fighting, but the fact that her, for all she does love Earthstripe, he still wasn't the best dad. Yeah, there's still so... a lot of memories where she's like... I could have grown to love this place. And if Earthshripe was still alive, it's entirely possible she would have stayed. Mm-hmm. But there's but no hope. Not. Yeah, there's no hope to make those new memories now. Yeah. So, and I really like the way that this book is ending. Like, the way that this book ends, it's soft in such a good way. It's not abrupt. There's not that immediate smash cut to being at Redwall. Everything's happy. Everything's cheerful. No more pain, no more worries. We get to have our happy feasts and live cheerfully until the next generation has a crisis happen. Yeah, we get the space to breathe after the climax and we get to see it. Also, I would like Brian to stop making me cry. This part also made me cry. It's so sweet. Like, just her getting that, the, the importance of being of Redwall. 
now because back then last names were more a description of where you were from or what you did where you were you from know, like your like it, it was something son of something mm-hmm. uh you know shit why like do, that why do you think there's so many people with the last name of smith you know <laughs> um, johnson uh-huh brown or Erickson. white or whatever it's one reason my last name is considered quite rare and unique. Um, my name means but... ditch digger. Ooh, we think ours might mean goat herder or goat tender. We think. Yeah, mine um, is mine is Welsh for ditch digger. But you know, she first she was Mara of Salamandastron. That's where she was from. That was her place. Mm-hmm. That was her identity. But now she is of Redwall, a place she hasn't even seen yet. But it feels right to go by that name. Yep. I've been now talking we... about names a lot recently. Sorry, I just I was just thinking how earlier this week I had a conversation with a couple of my trans friends about talking how they how they found their name. You know, like trying out different names until there was the one that felt right, the name that was them. Yep. It's a process. Some what? people find it right away and some people it takes a while. Yeah. So, we're back at Redwall now. And though fall is well underway, Abbas Vale won't hold a name day feast. She sets up watchers over the gate to keep an eye out for the return of Sam Kim and Arula. And of course, Abbas Vale and Faith Spinney share some tea in the gatehouse one windy day. Faith complaining that her eyes get tired so easily nowadays, though maybe it had been her watching the over the walls all day yesterday. She says yesternoon, just by the way. Yesternoon. Uh, Abbas Vale scolds her. Uh, there's plenty of young critters to do the watching, but Faith demurs. She wants to be the first to see them. And it keeps her away from the now bossy Dumble. Uh, Abbas Vale is very fed up with the little terror as well, who keeps harping her to name the season Hottam of the Heagle, because he keeps talking in the Northland accent. Someone, uh, please teach them how to discipline children. <laughs> Never. He um, needs a good solid time out. Sit him in a corner. <laughs> Behind her back, Dumble organizes a rebellion, basically. A sneaky rebellion to make a feast. Everyone works together, sneaking food and provisions under the guise of regular chores. Like, just, I know the adults are helping him in this, because, like, it mentions, like, a list of the adults who are helping Dumble. Yeah. It's He's the kind vast of the majority of the organizer. Them. The only two people who aren't in on it is Abbas Vale and Faith Spinney. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like, the ones who are just, like... <laughs> vale, Abbas Vale is, like, the most ineffective leader we've seen yet, and I feel really sorry for her, because she's yeah. got no control or respect. Like... They respect her like you do, like, a grandmother. Like, I'll listen to what you say, but I'm going to do what I think is best anyway. Yeah. Abbas Vale dozes off at about noon, uh, and Faith sneaks out to let her rest. When she sneaks out, she is nearly bowled over by McPherson, who'd been prepping to launch himself for a good flight. Uh, he grumbles and goes back to start uh, to the start of his runway, with her following and apologizing. Says he was just out to stretch his feathers, and of course, once she once he's gone, Faith mothers mutters how she wishes she understood him. It's not hard. You just have to listen. Like, hang on, let me see. Okay, here it is. Sorry, Your Majesty, did I disturb your exercises? McPherson sniffed the air, hopping from one foot to the other, which is ironic considering eagles have a terrible sense of smell. Um, 
Och no, wee lady. I'm just off for a stretch of the wings, ye ken. My feathers need a good wind ruffling them. He's going for a flight. Yeah, that's not that hard to understand. I think this is just like... It's Brian playing it's the up classism. Like the, yeah. Although to be fair, like someone who actually know, like an actual speaker of that accent would might we could give it the benefit of the doubt and say it's heavier than anything you or I can produce yeah, because we fair. are not speakers of the accent. So it's probably a case of the accent is heavier than we can duplicate or understand, especially being Americans. But also consider McPherson has been there for basically the amount of time of a whole season. Yeah. Halfway through summer, halfway into autumn, right? Yeah. You think much. she'd understand him by now? Yeah, but that would be too easy and you'd lose a joke then. Yeah. In the sick bay, Hollyberry tells Formal what's going on down there, worrying that McPherson may have given the game away to Faith. Formal says not to worry, she can't understand him anyway, them can't talk him properly. Which hot call kettle black. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Along the southern stream, the shrews are ferrying the Redwallers back home. Mara helping uh, paddle with a will. Like, she is fucking excited. Stop. What are you doing? What? Like, it says that she has enough strength to match two shrews. Yeah. In her paddling. She is just, she is ready to go. She wants to get to Redwall. She wants to know this place. Arula shares stories of Redwall feasts with Pickle, uh, who is both delighted and also just extremely like, uh, what are you doing to me? I want to eat it. <laughs> uh, each new delicacy that he hears her say. Uh, he claims his family are professional gluttons, after all. And like, and this little, this little turd has the audacity to correct Arula when she pronounces his name wrong. She calls him uh, Flogers instead of Folgers. Yeah. And he's like, it's Folgers, don't you know? Also, we didn't comment on this, but I have to now because I remembered it. Both Oxwood, or Oxeye and Sapwood, Oxwood is their ship name, uh, Oxeye and Sapwood <laughs> call Earthwhite and Earthstripe what's-his-nibs. Yeah. I think nibs is probably, like, a term of endearment, maybe? Yes, yes, absolutely. Like, they say their name after, like, they, they both say the proper name immediately after saying his nibs. But mm. it's still very funny that they're just, like, his nibs. And I'm it is just... very cute. <laughs> it was very silly. Definitely a soldier thing. Mm -hmm. um, Arula splashes Pickle, saying uh, it's true, like, that he's a glutton. Just as the... Uh, Formal? Did I type formal? I'm sorry. Logalog. Just as Logalog calls for weapons, they've spotted a massive bird of prey flying over. Logalog orders no one to fire. The bird may not be hunting. MacPherson takes a pass over them, saying they were brave, better not shoot. He'd really be angry if they did. Confused, due to his accent, Alpho hollers up to ask the bird where he's from. And he replies with a, a screeching call of Redwall. And Sam Kim enthusiastically replies back with another Redwall. McPherson flies over a northward branch of the stream. And Loglog figures it'll be, a, it'll be good to follow him. It's the right direction and as good a shortcut as any. The shrews sing one more rowing song. 
Beaching up the river, paddling down the stream. Find me a berth, lads, somewhere I can dream. Still quite waters there, where the lilies float. Cool and green, dark and clean, there I'll moor this boat. Oho, you old paddle, you had me, you have made me sore. Bent on my back and worried all my paw. Pull me into harbor, there I'll take my thanks. Lie by the river, slumber on the banks. Where the willows leaning o'er, and the waters kiss the shore, that's the place I will rest, lingering evermore. It's good shit, good shit. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I had to go Google something really quick. <laughs> um, okay. Back at the abbey at the crack of dawn, Abbas Vale and Faith Spinney are roused from their bed to be pulled in a little cart by Thrug. His excuse is that they need to pick violets and saxifrage in the old yards of St. Ninian's for Brother Hollyberry's medicines. And the, the mention of St. Ninian's, I fucking just, that one image of Eric Andre from the <laughs> Eric Andre show of him sitting behind a desk, arms up, yelling loudly, and I'm just like, it's still around! And it, I mean, I'm going like, to send you the exact image in the the. I know chat. the one you're talking about. But it's like St. Ninian's is like one of those things that tells us where we are on the timeline. Because, like, there are points after Why a certain book where St. Ninian's... Yeah, there's some point along the timeline where St. Ninian's will not exist anymore. Yeah. Anyway, that's the Eric Andre image. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's just the entire emotion that I had was just that. <laughs> uh, Faith is not buying this whatsoever. Not even when her husband says, Dawn's the best time to pick. She knows there's something afoot. Young creatures can pick as well as she and the abbess can. But Thrug smooths it over with flattery. Young creatures wouldn't be able to tell what was what. The two older ladies have experience. And that, you know, the, the flattery works. They're still like, mm, okay, I guess, but something's up. Uh, with them gone, as soon as the gates close, Tud calls for the others to get to work and get everything set up. Ladies still aren't fooled, but seeing that the day will be a gorgeous one, decide to play along. I will note, we do not have a lot of notes through here because, like, it just it's goes. It's short and fast, It's yeah. short and fast. McPherson has led the boats as far upstream as he could, but now there's nothing for it but a good hard march through the woods. The boats are beached and disguised, and a quick meal and nap is had before they resume their march at midnight. Mara is amazed by the trees. She thinks she'll come to like such a place as this. And Pickle, of course, can only complain about being hungry. He's definitely like, I'll like anywhere where there's good tuck. And it's like, yeah, also, we know you pause. will. Sorry, pause. Oh no, Angel's here with the little ones. We're almost done. We can okay, do this. Let's go. So, just a warning for everyone. You might hear little ones in the background for a bit, for the last bit of the recording. <laughs> okay. Let's go. Let's go. At the let's same time, out. the ladies are hauled out of Redwall. The crews reach the road. Pico keeps everyone going with a goofy little ditty. Okay. I give my left ear and raise a cheer for a plate of woodland pie. And as for puddin', if it was a good'un, I'd give my best right eye. I'd give a paw to get my jaw around a fat fruit cake. For dumpling stew, my tail could go too. I mean, for goodness sake. If I saw a pasty, I wouldn't get nasty. I'd trade it for me nose. And if I couldn't smell, I'd just say, well, I'd rather have one of those. So take my heart and leave me that tart, but my mouth I won't take off, because I plead it's a mouth I'll need to eat all this bolly scoff. It's good shit. 
The sunlight <laughs> lifts their spirits, and they start the march anew, a chant of all three war cries starting. Ibis Vale wakes up from a nap, realizing they are well past St. Ninian's now. Thurg only mumbles something and picks up his pace. She hears the chant, though, asking him to stop for a moment. Faith doesn't understand what she's hearing. What's a gussin? Vale knows it's their last duo, though, asking Thrug to hurry towards the sound. Logalog is startled by the sound of the incoming cart, calling for weapons, but Samkin and Arula recognize the trio and run to meet them, calling out joyously. The ladies are beside themselves with joy. They meet in a cloud of dust, tears, laughs, and hugs. The abbess manages to take control of the situation, saying they'd better calm down and greet the new friends Sam Kim and Arula had brought with them. Mara, shy and unsure, had dropped back to watch and listen. Abbas Vale greets the shrew leaders and orders Thug to take her and Faith back double time now. She needs to prepare lunch for them all. The shrews cheer as he does so, because she's like, we have nothing prepared for these guys. Oh my god. Uh, but I also, <laughs> I love how it's like, I know Mara's being shy, but... How, ma'am, how do you miss a whole badger? Yeah, every I mean, badger ever described is the thing. Yeah, but even then, I bet she still probably stands like a head above everyone else. So she's probably like head ducked low. She's like hiding, know, try- like crouched, yeah. like just shrunk in, like hunched, just like please don't see me. <laughs> I don't blame her. Like this is the lady who's gonna kind of sort of be her boss for a good while. <laughs> yeah. They get to the abbey to find the two ladies flustered and very much blocked by the gate. No amount of yelling and banging could get them in. Thurg had gone around back to see if he could climb in. They're both embarrassed that they couldn't offer proper hospitality. Like, just Abbas Vale. I know this is meant to all be charming because it's, like, everyone in the abbey planning this out. But it's like, Abbas Vale is loved, but she's not respected. She is not a leader. She is... She leads, but she's not a leader. Yeah. If you know what I mean. So Mara solves the problem by stepping forward, and the abbess is absolutely delighted to see her. And one solid smack of her great paw and a bellow to open up in the name of the abbess gets the gate to creak open. Everyone like they describe in... it echoing. Yeah. Because Badger's is loud. Uh, everyone greets the shocked group. Thrug steps up, admitting the plot. McPherson had been keeping track of the returning pair for like three days. Mm-hmm. And this had all been planned. Sam Kim and Arula are carried on shoulders into the Abbey crowns. A feast has been laid out in the orchard, and Pickle is, of course, delighted. Dumble appears, saying, It's name day feast. What'll the season be called? Like, what'll... It's name day feast, mother. Like, he drops the Northland accent specifically for mm-hmm. this. Like, he's just like, it's he's so day, excited. Mother. What'll it be called? And Abbas Vale looks at the returning two and the two they'd brought with them. It's Autumn of the Homecomers. And that made me cry. <laughs> They're home now. They have Three found their place. Three time I cry. <laughs> yeah. For different things. Yeah. <laughs> The feast is as grand as ever, but this one is special. Mara, the new guardian of Redwall, now sits in the badger chair. Bellows makes a speech, claiming the abbess had asked him to, which she hadn't. Uh, He's proud to serve such an odd group, and despite an interruption by Pickle, ends the speech on a jolly note. 
until Druni mocks him, telling him to rest his jaw and let the others eat. <laughs> it's uh, like, like Pickle's little interruption did make me chuckle a little bit. Um, here it is. Let's see. It is indeed unusual to see such visitors joining us. I've never catered for a royal golden eagle, four falcons, a badger, and a veritable army of shrews, to say nothing of a hare. I never told you to say nothing to me, old chap, Pickle chipped in. <laughs> like, okay, that did make me chuckle. <laughs> but I still want to chuck him in the pond. <laughs> I mean, somebody at the Abbey might actually do that, so, you know. If we're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Mara rescues Bellow's pride, complimenting him and saying his cooking lives up to the legendary standards of Redwall. She has the abbess say grace, then, and the feast begins. Okay. Squirrels, otters, hedgehogs, mice, moles with fur like sable, gather in good spirits all round the festive table. Sit we down to eat and drink, friends before we do, let's think. Fruit of forest, field, and banks, to the season we give thanks. What are you? Is this Brian, ridiculous? tell us your secrets! I just, the part of me who likes world building is just clawing desperately like, please, give let us, us some in. explanation. Again, like, Eric Andre meme, let us in! Let, let us, us in! in. <laughs> you, you, you have all these trappings of a religion without the actual religion! <laughs> there is no religion, there is only Redwall! Ah! <laughs> so the feast is as fancy as ever, and as decadent as ever, and everyone is as kind and jolly as ever, swapping food and good attitude. Like, we get a lot of back and forths around the table between people, all talking to each other and recommending food. We get the big, long list of the food, and oh my god. Mm-hmm. I was reading this this morning and was just like, <laughs> ah! Like, like my, my one or two sentence summary is a, like a chopping of a full page of just listing out food. Yeah. And I'm not exaggerating so when I say much. almost a full page. It is just... so much. And I was just like, I want to eat all of this. Like, uh, the, the, the five, hang on, I will read the five. Let's see. Let's see. Here we go. Amid a clatter of bowls and spoons, the feast began. Tables had been joined together to form a large cross shape. And there were five centerpieces. A Redwall Jubilee trifle of pears, damsons, green sap cream, and hazelnut trifle was on the north end. Opposite, at the southern trestle, stood a magnificent blackcurrant pudding, swimming in a peach-covered cream of whisked beechnut and strawberry, topped off with a sugar-preserved sprig of maple. The east side was graced by a high, wobbling redcurrant jelly, with flaked almond and chestnut suspended inside like a sunset snowstorm, and it was wreathed in a yellow piped meadow, meadow cream. At the west board was a great honey crusted confection of lattice pastry with mint cream and candied chestnuts oozing from it in a bed of purple plums. In the center stood a wide diamond of sweet arrowroot shortcake with all the fruit of the summer piled on it. Stiff comb honey blended with a puree of apple and raspberry. Whew! <laughs> Just I want to eat it! I want to as well! Uh, Rock Angus realizes uh, partway through the feast that his wings all healed and takes flight over the feast table to the cheers of his new friends. And Abbas Vale worries that they might not have enough, but Friar Bellow scoffs. He's laid out enough here, and for dinner, to feed an army. 
Like dinner, you don't include dinner at a feast. You eat until you're full, and then like three or four hours later, you wander back and graze. <laughs> it's fine. Mara says that he's done their abbey proud, and hearing that, the abbess asks Samkin if she meant it. Would she stay to be their guardian? Samkin says yes. Martin had said it must be so. As as the night goes on, like the abbess begins to drop into a doze, apologizing. It's been a long day already. And tomorrow, Macpherson will return the sword to the weather vane. She's content. The sword is back, her people are back, and a badger once more lives in the abbey. Things are as they should be. The youngsters watch as she falls into a contented sleep in the warm afternoon sun. And I just, I love, after how intense of a book this was, especially that last battle, the gentleness of this ending, the softness of the homecoming, feels so good and satisfying. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I, I am a little disappointed that we didn't get Samkin learning about Bremen's death. Um, because I think that we should have seen that, but with the way that it is written, I don't, there's not anything missing. Yeah. Right? I feel, I do feel like Brian was done with Bremen as a character, which is why he was written off the way he was, similar to how Spriggett was. So yeah, the death doesn't there's... actually matter in the end. There's still, we don't get that closure of... Not even closure, just that Sam Kim, he came back to Redwall with the sword. He mm -hmm. was so desperate to prove to Bremen specifically mm -hmm. that he didn't do it and that he was worth Bremen trusting. And yeah. we don't get to see any closure to that at all. Like any, mm -hmm. any bit of the end of that story for Sam Kim. Nope. We just get this and Bremen died and we don't know how Samkin feels about it which you know sometimes it's like that we don't get to know every part of a character's story it's something nope. I would have liked to see it's something I'm disappointed we didn't get to see Yeah. but I don't think the story suffers for us not having seen it mm -hmm. so now we cut back to the old dormouse and the young mole from the start of the book the dormouse is sleeping the mole roasting a chestnut on the fire. His grandmother comes to collect him, asking if he'd liked the story. He did, but he suspects Dumble had been fibbing, and he is soundly scolded by his grandmother, Arula. He apologizes, seeing as she'd been in the story, it must be true. There is just one more question. Why does Dumble always sleep outside in the orchard? Arula muses that he must be waiting for his friends, the eagle and falcons, to return. And maybe, someday, they would. Together they enter the abbey, leaving the door open for any weary traveler who wished to enter. Crying. Yeah. This part didn't, like, actually make me cry, but it was still just like, ah. Like, like the implication that the Falcons and the and McPherson haven't come back, it, it just... It gives me, like, the vibes of um, that one character in Hook, the one who's, like, trying to find his marbles so he can return to Neverland. Like, mm -hmm. just that constant longing for something that's lost. Oh. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Poor Dumble. I know. It's just, like, he doesn't, like, why can't they come visit? It's only, like, a day or two's flight. Who knows? Eh. 
Okay. So that's the end of Salamandastron. Yeah, that's... Like, this was definitely... I think this is, like, right neck and neck with um, Mariel right now for sheer enjoyment of reading. I do Mm -hmm. think Mariel wins out for me just a little bit because I like Mariel so much as a character. Yeah. But overall, I will agree that Salamandastron was better written. Yeah, it is the better book of the the two, I think. I think it reads out loud a lot better. I think it has a lot better... The plot is a lot tighter. Uh, the way that all of the, like, plots come together feels a lot tighter. Um, but, like, character-wise, I think it just does come down to preference. Mm-hmm. And I prefer Salamandastron over Mariel. Like, I love Mariel. I think she's fucking fantastic. Yeah. But... I really like Mara. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, what was your favorite weird Abbey food? Shoves my face into all five of those ending right? confections. Oh my god. Oh Just my god. Go. Literally everything from that feast. The peach they had cream. That peach so cream on top of it. So many different cheeses. Oh, the cheese. Ah! I might have something cheesy for dinner now. I'm hungry. <laughs> it's oh, I've got pork and beans cooking, got baby. Pork and beans. <laughs> so southern leave me alone i like soup beans hey you're valid i need to make cornbread to go with it um (laughs) what nothing leave me alone no i needed to use the ham bone i know it's okay anyway was there an animal that appeared that surprised you slash did an animal subvert expectations Uh... not in this part of the book Mm -mm. no not really I I i suppose like earth stripes death surprised yeah. me i um, think mcpherson's character he just, just kinda, in general like yeah. over the whole of the book he's a very surprising character because he is this fearsome terrifying and very dangerous king of the mountains who when faced with a tiny child is just like yeah no i'll go along with it we're good i love this child I, again, I will do anything this child asks. <laughs> like you mentioned last time, I think it's a case of like when he's given respect and when he's, he also has his own pride. And when that pride isn't threatened, he's able to be rather genial and enjoy company. It's just, he's always lived in a place where there wasn't a lot of, you know, excess to go around, but then he's brought to this place where people are, they're happy, they're relaxed, they're having mm-hmm. a good time. So he's just like, yeah, all right. They're feeding me. I've got no reason to be aggressive when I'm getting free food. Yeah, and respect. And, you know, everybody, he's not yeah. used to this kind of culture. And he's just like, this is like a vacation. Damn. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, he's having fun. Uh, what is your favorite part? Honestly, the homecoming. Just like the, the like Mara getting to, or no correction. Sam Kim and Mara having that conversation by the water. Yes. Uh, I think basically just the entire, like, this last part is my favorite because of the pacing and the way it all wrapped up is just so tight and nice and well done that I can't pick a specific thing from this part of the book. And I think overall, this is my favorite part of the book. Yeah. And how well do you think this book could be read out loud? Very well. Very well, but you'd have to be willing to give time for the kids to digest the heavier moments. This is definitely a book that you read out loud maybe, like, a few chapters at a time, Mm -hmm. uh, like, before bed, um, Mm -hmm. so that the kids can digest it. 
you know, because it is a very heavy book and you got to let them be able to, you know, take all that in. Mm -hmm. So questions from our listeners from Ben on Discord. Yep. From Ben on Discord. He has a few. Is this the first time in the books that a main villain actually got killed directly by their enemy rather than Scorpion, Bell, Water, etc., even if not by a main character? I think like for a main main villain, I would have to say yes because we do have a scene where there's that previous badger lord who like crushes the sea rat captain. Yeah, but that was but like that's the a, sea a... rat captain and Boar were both like we were they seeing were, the end of a different book. <laughs> yeah, we were coming in at the end of a completely different book with those two. Like, mm-hmm. this is this is the side characters coming in in the, like, middle of an anime vibe. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> like you we're know, a cameo from a story you haven't seen yet. <laughs> yeah, and that we won't see. And mm-hmm. so, like, yeah, I think that this is the first time we have seen them be directly killed. Mm-hmm. Because for Martin, like yes, he and Sarmina did a lot of fighting. Sarmina he does drowned. Direct, he does directly kind of like force her into the water, though. But that we can see that with um, Matthias as well. That's true. He and cut we the rope s- that dropped the bell. Mm-hmm. I, I would and we say can Matthias, say that with Mariel. I would say Matthias definitely counts as a direct kill because he intentionally cut the rope to crush him, and it wasn't an accident. With no, but... Mariel, I don't know. I would argue that Mariel is closer to the karma because the scorpion wasn't an intentional thing. Yeah, they... and with um, with uh, uh, shit, slag, slagger, slagger. So with slagger, it was definitely an accident. They had not intended for him to die like that. Mm-hmm. There was he definitely just where they down were. A well. <laughs> yeah, they were definitely trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, but he falls down a well and just you know breaks all his bones. Yeah, well, well, well. Oh my god. <laughs> so, I don't remember. I think our next book is Martin the Warrior. I am eighty mm-hmm. percent sure that he just he fucking murks some people in that book because that is <laughs> that is the book where like it shows his past where he came from and there's. Oh, there's slavery in that book, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I'm kind of glad we're taking a, a, a break for a bit. Oh, yeah. Yes. Heads up, guys. We're going to take a break after we're gonna, this. We'll like, talk we're gonna, about it at the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got more <laughs> questions. Next question from Ben. At the end, did the Dumble reveal make you sad, too? Do you think he did get the visits between the main story and the ending? It's I was sad because implied the way... that he didn't. Yeah. The way that it's implied is that he's never gotten a visit, but... You know, it's possible that he did. Yeah, because you know? it, it doesn't make any sense for him not to see them again. Because At the least way Rock I, Angus. Yeah. Because the way I figure is that probably at this point in their lifespan, McPherson probably has died of old age. Um, mm. But Rock but Angus like, was young. Yeah. So, like, the other Falcons should definitely come to visit unless they're, like, there may be a case of, like, their territory was taken from them or a circumstance mm-hmm. that... They couldn't come to visit anymore, but it is implied that it has been quite a long time since he's seen them. Yeah, and it could be that just maybe they've gotten too busy, mm-hmm. or Rock Angus has taken over for his father. Mm-hmm. Now he's Laird. McCallan. Because we we don't hear about the Falcons continuing to come back to visit the Abbey. They don't no. come back. Like every book, we get a different creature who's not related to you know. Yeah. Previous birds. So of many prey. birds. Birds. Brian Next. likes his deus ex birdinas. 
I'm moving on. Last question from Ben. Do you think Salamandastron is actually a volcano or just looks a little <sighs> bit like one and it's a myth made by the inhabitants? Given that it wouldn't fit geologically and is, in canon in later books, filled with limestone stalactites and stalagmites in the lower caverns. All right. I, I mean, I've actually thought about this. You guys have heard me go on about this I need it. I need it. Before you go off on this, okay. I need to go off about the limestone. <laughs> There's no way that there would be limestone in this. It is a mountain on the <laughs> edge of a beach. Like it's literally basically almost right up against the water. In mm -hmm. some books, it is up on the water. Mm -hmm. Like the water is beating against the side of the mountain. There would not. Limestone makes up. The vast majority of the caves and caverns of, Appala of the Ala Appalachian Mountains, as well as the mountains and cave formations that are in uh, the UK. Scotland, specifically. Mm-hmm. Limestone is extremely water permeable. Like, extremely. Like, yes, that's why it forms stalactites and stalagmites. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't... If this mountain was made of limestone, it would have crumbled into the ocean so long ago. Mm-hmm. It's the salt of the tears of the vermin who've thrown themselves against. Oh my god! <laughs> right. uh, okay. Although it does, it, it limestone does make sense though with how much of like a warren it is because limestone it is does. soft enough that you would be able to carve it like that and firm enough that like it wouldn't collapse. So I personally believe it is an artificial mountain, which would help justify the existence of the limestone as well, because it said that the mountain or like the forge and the mountain were built to look like a volcano. The forge was built so that it would look like a volcano. So the thought could be that over all these generations, these countless generations of badgers smithing and making things that the soot, the ash, just everything has compacted together to protect a limestone core. It's, That's I mean, why it's like living stone bothered. Like, there's mm -hmm. so much about like they've in multiple books have described the beach around Salamandershawn as being sandy, as being rocky, as being mm -hmm. pebbly. And here's the thing: if you're gonna have a limestone sh like something like that, there's gotta be other like there's there's gotta be just chunks. Mm -hmm. It can't be disconnected from a mountain range, no. which it's the same reason it can't be a volcano either. There would be other mountains around it. Even if it was over a magma spot, you would still have mountains. Like the Yellowstone caldera, or cauldron, is surrounded if by mountains. If it was an of course that's island, it I would be high, less like. concerned about this. Like, if it was an island, I would be way less like, this doesn't make yes. sense. Yes, But it's not an island! It's on the edge of an island. Uh, I guess what is dubiously an island. We never actually get the full scope of this... It is land on the edge of a landmass. Yeah. It is not on the size of it versus the size of everything. Because the way they describe journeys is that it takes almost a full season to multiple seasons mm -hmm. to get between the Abbey and Salamandastron, depending on the direction you go. Mm -hmm. It's easier Which to get means... there and harder to get back because you're going against the streams and rivers. Exactly. But it's huge. And mm. they can't see it from the Abbey. Yeah. Because there's mountains in the way. Yeah. Mountains it's not that taller are just... than those. The, the, yeah. It it feels like a weird leftover, like from 
if there was a valley between that and the mountains, I would be like, okay, this is a weird leftover from tectonic plates shifting and pulling away from each other. Like, mm-hmm. I could imagine that this is, like, the very edge of a tectonic plate. Mm-hmm. And so there's usually a lot of earthquakes, but that would mean that it would probably be an active volcano. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And it's there's just, it doesn't make sense geographically. Well, another, another argument against it being not a volcano is that if it was a volcano, it would imply that we are on the edge of a plate somewhere or a hot spot, and yes. there would be earthquakes. We never hear about earthquakes, which would be a good plot point. Like, Kit. oh, there's been an earthquake. Something's gone wrong. Kit, there's a freshwater spring underneath it. Yeah. First of all, I want to know. You're wait, right on the, the edge ocean. of the. You're right on the edge of the ocean. Where is Where's that freshwater, freshwater spring coming from? You're yeah. on a beach that is covered in sand. Where is this coming from? It's like Salamandastron has more magical bullshit it involved in it logic and i hate it like i don't hate it i love salamanderstron i think it's really cool and it's a neat place and it has interesting history and lore and weird magic bullshit but also it makes no sense even if you take it in context with myths and religion myths and religious stories with similar things they at least to some degree make fucking sense they have a basis in truth Exactly. This is just a mountain that's disconnected from everything in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, what the fuck are you doing here? It becomes whatever the plot needs it to be. It feels like the hand of God just, like, scooped up some, like, stones from the ocean and just dribbled You know how, like, you can make, like, the wet sand towers? Uh That's what it feels like. (laughs) Feels like God made a wet sand tower and just left it and it hardened and turned into a mountain. Now, there's a and creation like, myth for you. God, I don't... That was a joke. I don't want that to be the creation myth. Because it's <laughs> stupid. I hate this. Somebody... It's people who know more about geology and shit... Come to us and tell us how Salamanderstrong could make sense. Bring us a theory. Please, somebody help us make this make sense so that we can stop being mad about it. <laughs> Uh, uh, in before. It never happens. We will always be mad about it. Anyway, from Super Skylake. Is it just me, or is the on-screen death count of good people in Salamanderstron abnormally high? Dryditch Fever kills three, and then the Siege of Salamanderstron actually takes out a good number more. Oh, and Spriggit dying to the Deep Coiler. I only noticed this now. Yeah, it's pretty high. <laughs> I definitely agree. There's a lot of characters introduced in this book and as many who are killed off. Brian yeah. introduced them as they were needed and then killed them off when they weren't. Named good guy characters. We're not going to count named vermin because named yeah. vermin usually die. Yeah. Named good guy characters. It feels like about a third of them just die. Yeah. Like... A third to a fourth of them. Like, it's a decent number compared to other books. And it's very weird. Like, this is probably the most named character deaths we've had since Mossflower. Mm -hmm. And Mossflower definitely made sense because that was a guerrilla war. So Yeah. So, like, oh, I feel like Brian was working some things out with this book. (laughs) Like, he started it, like, like, just like some of the viciousness he displays in this book. It's like, hey, Brian, what were you going through when you wrote this? Like, I bet you at this point he'd gotten some feedbacks from feed feedbacks. I bet you at this point he had gotten feedback from the first four books. 
And this is like, again, him kind of responding to criticisms and or critiques that he'd gotten. Yeah. Is kind of what it feels like to me. Uh, sorry, I just picked up my Martin the Warrior book and realized how fucking beat to shit it is. <laughs> this one was one of my favorites. Like, I get... Because I had hyperlexia, the thing about hyperlexia is that you will read a shit fuck ton of books and you will not remember anything about them. Except, Except vague for memories. bits and pieces. Uh-huh. You have vague memories. I vaguely remember there being uh, slavery in this one. Oh boy. And also Tim Ballisto's in it. Hey, it's your boy, Tim Ballisto. It's my boy. It's my boy, Tim Ballisto. But I don't remember anything else. Well, we're going to find out. Except that, like, Martin fucks shit up. All right, so is this a good point to segue into the fact that we are going to be taking a break? Yes. So once these two episodes are posted, uh, we are going to post the bloopers after this. So it'll be these two, the bloopers, and then we are taking a break from recording and posting until, like, probably mid-January to the end of January so that we have a break for things like we need mm-hmm. to do some planning we are going to record a shoot uh shoot the breeze episode um about just nonsense before we start into martin the warrior it's probably going to are... be video game themed so if you guys want to throw some video games at us to talk about please do so yeah it's just we're gonna we floated the idea of video games because both of us are just ass deep in different video games right now. Uh, I just beat the main plot line of Pokemon Violet and bugs and all. I'm sorry, Violet has like shot to the top of my favorite Pokemon games. And I'm in World of Warcraft Hell, uh, a game that I said I would never go back to, and then a friend of mine was like, "Here you go, here's the new expansion with the dragons," and I'm in Hell. Um, but so we're probably not going to end up reading Martin the Warrior until February. Yeah, because I'm also going to take off for, like, Oregon for a week at the end of January for my birthday, so... Yeah, and January is your, like, break month. Yeah, I mean, like, I do still work, but I'm very picky about what work I will do. Yeah, that's your break month. I have commissions I need to finish. Like, we have stuff that we need to do. We have to do some planning because we want to have some guests on for some different things. We need to properly plan out doing our game streams so that we can finish playing the Redwall games. (laughs) We're so sorry, Um, guys. Life happens so much. Life happens. You know, we can only stream when we have the time. Um, but we want to make sure that we get, like, a schedule down for that shit, you know. Mm -hmm. So we've got to take the time to plan all of that, and we can't do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because time. We're adults. We both have jobs. We both have other obligations. And we've got to balance. And we want to have a little free time to do stuff that we enjoy, too. So, and like, this, this is something we do partially for, like, it is a thing we do for fun. But it is but. work. <laughs> yes, it is in fact work. <laughs> yeah. Um. So like we've just got to, you know, take the time. And yeah, so we're not going to be back until about February again. You're going to get these two episodes. You're going to get the bloopers and you're going to get whatever the fuck we record for the Shoot the Breeze episode, mm-hmm. which is, you know, always going to be some fucking nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll probably go out like mid-January. I'm gonna get to yell about Pokemon riding the state of the video game industry, and probably Digimon too because the Digimon game also went through development hell. But yeah, we're both <laughs> gonna get to yell about the video game industry because Jesus, because yes. we're both <laughs> playing games that are just in 
Oh, the industry. Oh, boy. They anyway. They really, really should have had at least, like, half a year. <laughs> at least. And then everybody knows World of Warcraft and Activision Blizzard. Anyway, that is not the point of this. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Next time, we're going to read Martin the Warrior. Make sure you guys read it. Send us your questions and discussion points. Even though we're not going to be posting or recording, we will still have the Discord. We have our Tumblr. Please come talk to us. Yeah. We're very friendly people. I know some people can feel a little intimidated by people, but we do genuinely enjoy receiving, like, asks and, Mm -hmm. like, people coming into our Discord to talk to us. We enjoy that immensely. We have grown our community on Discord so much since we started this, like, a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a year ago. Almost two years now. Yeah, it's going to be getting into two years, like, mm-hmm. next year. Like, we're so lucky to have all of this. We love you guys. And with that, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful that you lent us your ears, and we hope that you enjoyed your time with us. I have been Izzy. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. Uh, you can find the other podcast that I do at Hope's Hearth uh, Pod, or just Hope's Hearth. I uh, solo Hope Punk actual play. I do have commissions. They are currently closed, but you can always put in a request for one and I will get back to you when they're open. I have like five things I have to be working on and I need to finish those before I can take more. And this has been Kit. Uh, you can find me at Kitsy in a Box across most social medias, but I am most active on Tumblr. Um, I do have a few other accounts. I take commissions as well, and I also design Kitsunday, which are little dessert-themed foxes, and you can get your custom ones by throwing by throwing an example at me and money. Yeah. <laughs> money. You can find us both at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Again, you can tag us, ask us questions, just talk to us. We enjoy it. So may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry. From us to you at Redwall Abbey. Awesome. All right. listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.